The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Our reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 29. Um, Hear now the word of God. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd, and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. It's really fun to be here with you all at Streets, which I know is like a second home to many people uh, in our congregation, and it's such a wonderful space to be in. We're continuing this morning our series on giving, um, which is kind of weird because, I mean, one of says we both, we all know what the giving sermon is about, right? It's about learning to be receivers of God's good gifts and becoming generous people who give good gifts to God and neighbor. But we also all know, I think, that giving can go horribly wrong. Giving can go horribly wrong. If you don't believe me, think about the last time that you were with a child 15 minutes after Halloween trick-or-treating ended. Right? Just think about it. The whole Halloween thing is based around giving good gifts to our children. Right? 15 minutes after it ends, everyone is screaming, everyone is fighting, the costumes are being ripped out, Johnny's stealing candy from Lucy, there's chocolate on the floor. It is one huge disaster. Right? Giving can go horribly wrong. It's actually not that hard, uh, or actually it's, it's often very hard for us to become the generous people that God wants us to be, who receive good gifts from God and give good gifts to God and neighbor. So this morning we're talking about how the book of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy 14 in particular, can help us become the generous people of God. And I want to suggest four things the book of Deuteronomy teaches us about how we as a church family can become the generous people of God. And the first thing is, to become the generous people of God, we've got to recognize the way our hearts often turn the money God gives us into idols. 
To become the generous people of God, we have to recognize the way that our hearts turn the economic blessings that God gives us into idols. And we see this throughout Deuteronomy. If you open up Deuteronomy 1 and you read through Deuteronomy chapter 12, you'll find that the story is about God's people on the border of the promised land. God has brought Moses and Israel to the borders of this land that he's about to give them. And God is about to give them this crazy, good, abundant economic gift. They've been landless slaves and peasants, and God's like, I'm going to give you this huge, awesome, promised land. I'm going to give you the biggest blessing ever, right? And God is crazy about this gift that he's giving to his people. And so over and over again in chapters 1 through 12, God gives these long speeches where he's like, I'm giving you this amazing land! And it's got, it's got all sorts of stuff in it! Your, your flocks are going to multiply, there's wells that you didn't build, you're going to move into cities that you didn't have to work for, it's, gonna, it's flowing with milk and honey, this place is amazing! I'm about to give you the greatest gift ever! And God gives these speeches, and then all of a sudden, on a dime... He shifts and says, and when I give you that gift, be careful because you're probably going to get really, really fat and forget about me and worship idols. You're probably going to take the good gift that I give you and turn it into an idol. Just listen to Deuteronomy 8, right after God has given this long, long speech about how great the promised land is. He says, be careful lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your not lifted up, and you forget me, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Be careful, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. No, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you this day, you shall surely perish. Now, if you're tracking what I've said so far, this should seem really weird. It should seem really weird. Most of us, myself included, spend a lot of time asking God to give us more stuff, more money, to bless us economically, to give us a better job, to give us a pay raise. In fact, many times, if we feel convicted about how we're not giving, we think that the problem is that we don't have enough to give. God, give me more money so I can give more. I'm not as generous as you want me to be. Help me out. Give me some more stuff so I have more to be generous with. And nothing can prepare us for God saying, yeah, I'm going to give you good gifts and you're really likely to screw it up. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to answer that prayer. But be careful that you don't take the good gifts that I'm giving you and turning them into idols. And actually, if we look at statistics about giving in America today, we find out that Deuteronomy is on to something. For instance, if you break down the average American and you put them into income brackets, you know, up at the top are the people who make like, I don't know, seven or eight figures, and there's a bracket with six figures, then you break down the five-figure people, and you go all the way down. What you find as a general rule over a long period of time is that the less money you make the more you give as a percentage of your income. In other words, as people make more money, they give less as a percentage of your income. 
And I know when I say that, some of you are like, yeah, those rich people, they're terrible, bad old rich people. I always knew they were bad, right? I know, it's, I know you, I know you, because that's what I said too. Uh, but if we look at that same statistic over time, it actually holds true for everybody. For instance, if you look at one 50-year period from about 1960 to 2010, every single economic group made major gains. Yes, some made way more than others, but every single group of Americans on average saw significant gains in their income. They, we all got richer, everybody on average. And during that exact same period, Christians, evangelical Christians, on average, their giving dropped from 6% of their income to 3% of their income. In other words, as we all got richer, we gave about half as much. What is this telling us? It's telling us the exact same thing that Deuteronomy is telling us. That we often turn the economic gifts that God gives us into an idol. We often say, I need God to bless me so I can be a blessing to others. And the reality is, the blessings that, that, that God gives us often threaten our worship, and ability to become generous. Now, this is hard for us to uh, get behind. It's hard for us to understand this. But, you know, uh, one famous theologian, John Calvin, famously said, our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts manufacture idols. Our hearts churn out idols for us to worship besides God. And what Deuteronomy is saying is, one of the number one materials that our idol factory hearts use to make idols is the money and stuff that God gives us. Our hearts, our idol factory hearts, churn out idolatries with the money and the stuff that God gives us. And what that means is that you and I ought to be terrified of money. I know that's an unpopular thing to say. Uh, one of the most generous people I know, uh, some of you will know him, Alan Barnhart. He's a business owner in our community. His son, Nick, goes to church here with us. He's a member of our community here. And when he became the owner of his family business, he spent several years reading the Bible from start to finish. He said, I'm going to look for everything the Bible says about money, economics, business, blah, 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 blah. I want to learn what the Bible says about my profession. I'm going to look, read it cover to cover several times. He came up with two conclusions. One of the conclusions that he came up with after reading the Bible several times is that we should be terrified terrified of being wealthy. And that's exactly what Deuteronomy is saying. And a problem with us today, folks, is we are not nearly scared enough of our economic success. We are not nearly scared enough of our money. In fact, we probably think that while greed is something that those super rich people deal with, you know, like the really, you know, up there, when we look at ourselves and our own lives, most of us probably think we don't have enough money to make an idol out of it. Right? Most of you are thinking, Michael, I don't have enough disposable income. I would create a very small idol. <laughs> I don't have enough. And the consistent testimony of Scripture, though, is that this is something that we all do. In fact, think about who the book of Deuteronomy is talking to. The book of Deuteronomy, when it says, hey, I'm going to give you these gifts and you're going to turn them to idols, it, it, God is talking to formerly enslaved people. He's talking to people who never had two nickels to rub together. When Jesus says, I'm worried that you're going to worship God and money. When Paul says, greed just is idolatry. He's not talking to a room full of Bill Gates's and Oprah's. He's talking to people who by and large made way less money than you do. 
And God's saying to them, over, it's saying to us over and over again, regardless of what you make, regardless what's in the bank account, your heart can turn money into an idol that you will worship, that will keep you from being the people that I want you to be. Don't believe me? Ask yourself some questions that I asked myself this week. Have you ever found it hard to stop working, stop striving, take a break, do less? Have you ever gotten more money and found it harder to be generous with it? Have you ever found yourself tempted or actually doing illegal things to get money, like maybe selling drugs or claiming other people on your income taxes? Have you ever gotten a raise and felt super excited about it, and then six months later felt super grumpy and even angry that your income hadn't continued to rise? Have you ever looked at other people and judged them positively or negatively because of the difference in their income? Like, have you ever been in a room and thought, I'm the poorest person here and felt ashamed? Or been in a room and felt like, I'm one of the wealthier people here and felt pride? Have you ever felt like when you give, you give last with what's left over? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you might be an economic idolater, just like me. Our hearts are idol factories, and they take advantage of the money that God gives us. So what's the solution? God gives the Israelites the promised land anyways. Is, is the stuff itself the problem? Is the money itself the problem? How do we receive the gifts that God gives us and not become idolaters? How do we receive the good gifts that God gives us and become the generous people that he wants us to be? Well, Deuteronomy gives tithe. Now, as soon as I bring up the tithe, I know that some of you are like checking out. Like, I've heard that sermon before, but just wait. Just wait, because Deuteronomy gives us a tithe that's unlike any other tithe we've ever heard of. Because the second thing that we learn from Deuteronomy, the second thing that we learn from Deuteronomy, and specifically from the tithe in Deuteronomy, is that to become the generous people of God, we've got to start by worshiping our generous king with joy. Our hearts are idol factories, but if we want to become the generous people of God, we start by learning to worship our generous king with joy. Now, to help us get this, let's do a little thought experiment. I'm not on staff here, so I'm allowed to do weird stuff. So I want you to turn slightly to the person next to you who you're about to talk to, just to the person next to you, and then we're going to play a word association game. I'm going to say a word, and then you're going to say, without thinking, without thinking, the first feeling words... The first feeling words that come to your mind when I say my word. So I just say a word and then immediately hear, immediately hear a lot of feeling words, right? So if I said cat, have you be like, ugh, gross, and have you be like, oh, sweet, okay? Right? I'm one of the aw sweet people. I really like cats. It's one of my secrets. It's one of my biggest shames. I'm a cat person. Okay, so you got to be honest. I just gave you my honest feelings about cats. you got to give the person next to you your honest feeling about the word that I'm going to say. Okay, do you understand? Does everybody understand? I'm a teacher. I do this in class that I can tell if you're paying attention, right? So I'm taking marks, all right? Okay, so here's the first word. Ready? Feeling words. Here's my word. Tithe. Building campaign. All right, some of you have been lying so far. I'm going to give you one you can be honest about. Taxes. <laughs> okay. Stewardship Sunday. Stewardship Sunday. Some of y'all didn't have that. Where? <laughs> Fund. 
fundraising. Do fundraising. Okay. Right. Now, I, I, did you feel the joy and energy going out of the room? <laughs> I did. It's good to be with Downtown Church. I've done this at a bunch of churches, and most of the rest of them are liars. You know, they're like, happiness, garbage, right? We all know, we all know that it's bad news when the pastors are like, we're going to do six weeks on giving. I'm surprised any of you are still here, right? Okay, we all know, right? Because we know we've all had bad experiences with giving. Whether that giving is to church or, or to the state. Like, we all have an ugly feeling about taxes to some extent, right? But guys, in the ancient world, these Israelites that God's talking about, they knew all about tithes, and they knew all about taxes. The tithe was one of the ways that the king or the governor or the priest got one over on you. Right? If you're an Israelite, they knew the tithe or the tax is just one more tool by the high priest or the pharaoh or the boss man or king so-and-so to get more of your stuff. So when God says to Israel, I'm going to give you a law, and I want you to tithe 10% of everything that comes out of the field, they're going like, oh no, gosh, no, please. And then when God says, and then I want you to take the first born cow of all your cows and the firstborn flocks of all your sheep and, the, and they're going, oh, please, no, no. And when you say, and I want you to bring it to the central sanctuary, they know this is really bad news, right? This is the man, this is the boss, this is the king coming to get theirs from them. And they would have been super ticked off and nothing could have possibly prepared them for God to say, and when you get here with all of your taxes that you owe me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to eat them all up. I want you to take what you owe me. I want you to take the check that you owe Uncle Sam, and I want you to feast on it. Like, wait, what? We're supposed to give our tithes so that people can oppress us more, right? We're supposed to give our tithes so the pastors can buy Benzes and we can build huge buildings that we don't need. No, eat it up. Throw a huge feast, a huge party. And they're like, really? And God says, yeah, like, I'm really serious about this. Let me take it a step further. If you can't get all your stuff to the sanctuary, here's what I want you to do. Take your tithe, turn it into money, get it to the sanctuary, and then buy whatever you wish for this party. And these are good church folks. They're like, you mean like cake? And he's like, no, no, no. I mean like ribeyes and booze, right? God uses wine, words for alcohol, three times in one sentence. Why? Because he's saying, I seriously want you to throw the biggest party you can imagine with me. This is why I want you to give me everything you owe me. So I can give it back to you. So you can feast together with me. What God is saying is that I am a king like no other. I am a king. I am a God who takes everything you owe me and gives it back to you so that we can be together in joy. The gods of the nations, the kings of the nations, the priests of the nations are always taking, 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 and they never give anything back. And when you and I worship workaholism and greed and money, those gods charge ever steeper tithes and they give less and less back. But God says, I'm the kind of king who demands everything so that I can bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, God is not demanding that we worship Him through giving today because He wants to take our joy and send it somewhere else. 
God is demanding that we worship him through giving today because that's one of the ways that we experience his deep joy that he has for us. Because that's the way that you and I find ourselves at a feast, a party beyond our wildest dreams with God himself at the head of the table and as the host. We will never be generous until we begin to learn to worship our generous God with joy. Generosity begins with an encounter, our encounter, with a God who loves us so much that he gives everything that we owe him back in joy. So if we want to become the generous people of God, we have to recognize the way that our hearts often turn the money that God gives us into idols. We have to learn to worship our generous king with joy... But thirdly, we have to to become the generous people of God. We've got to become the family of God at the feast. To become the generous people of God, we've got to learn to become the family of God at the feast. Okay, so I just said that God takes all the taxes and tithes that the Israelites owe him and he gives them back to them for their delight. Right? Strong drink, ribeye steak, right? All you can eat kind of stuff. But he doesn't do that like in like a McDonald's Happy Meal that he hands to each individual Israelite through the to-go window, right? God doesn't get like an assembly line and says, here's your text, here's your text, take your text, here's your... No, it's not like that. God says, this is a feast, this is a party, and I want you to celebrate it by household. Now, this is one of those places where we're reading the Bible and we, we are in danger of, of missing the point. Because for me, maybe not for you, but for me, household means me and Rebecca, my wife, and our four children. And that's about it, right? That's what a household is. But in Israel's day, the household was more like an extended family kinship group. So it might be me and my wife, Rebecca, and a widowed mother and an unmarried aunt and our cousins twice removed and all sorts of people who were blood relatives with us. And the way that we would survive in that day, and Richard talked about a little bit about this last week, the way we would survive in that world is by being family together, all together. And it would take all of us. It would take unmarried aunt and second cousin once removed to survive. But if you weren't connected to a household like that, like if you were a refugee who just showed up to the neighborhood, or you were a widow who wasn't connected to any family, or perhaps you were someone who'd become so poor that you had to sell your own land, and then all you have left to give up is your labor, so you've become a debt slave. Or maybe you're a hired worker who has no place to stay, no place to lay your head, and you're just passing through trying to make a living. All these groups, the way that they would survive is by connecting to one of these households, by becoming a member of one of these existing households. So when scholars look at these households, they they don't describe them as kinship groups, they describe them as fictive, fictitious kinship groups. They're, They're people you treat like family, even if they might not actually be family, right? Like, if you grew up in the South, you know we call all kind of people cousin, right? I mean, or auntie, or uncle. So, I mean, when I was growing up, we had an uncle so-and-so. He had no kin to us, right? But he was a part of our family, right? And in the ancient world, that's how you survived. Vulnerable people had to become attached to existing households, okay? You tracking with me so far? And, and Deuteronomy is explicit about this because it tells us in chapter 16 that when you feast, 
You come to the feast with your household, which is you and your son or daughter, your male servant and female servant, the Levite priest who's within your towns, the immigrant, the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow who are among you. So here's what God's saying. I'm inviting you to the greatest party ever. I'm going to give you a full refund on your taxes this year. There's only two conditions. You eat it all up with me and a huge party, and every single person has a seat at the table. The feast has to be the place that God's inviting us to, where every single person has a seat at the table. God's saying, you know how you're going to learn what I'm like? You know how you're going to learn how to be generous people? Come to the feast that I'm throwing and find yourselves being family with all the people you spend the rest of your lives trying to separate yourself from. Bring your tithe, find that you're at the greatest party ever, and then be shocked that those people were also invited. Right? And those people were not like secondary guests. Those people are fully vested members at the table. Right? Becoming the generous people of God requires us to become family with the entire community across lines of class and race and status and ethnicity and belonging. Note, folks, God doesn't begin his lesson on generosity by saying, have a big party, learn how generous I am, and then go out and find some like poor marginalized folks and you know do something nice for them because it's Thanksgiving. No, he doesn't. He says the opposite of that. He says, actually, he's actually I got, this is what he says, I've got really good news. I've got really good news for all of you. I'm throwing a huge party and you're all invited. God says, be a community. This is, the, this is the, the idea. God says, you're supposed to be a community who's good news for the poor and the marginalized. And we hear, okay, so create like a bajillion social service agencies. But God's saying, like, no, it starts with being a community that's good news for the poor because you're feasting and they're all with you. Because you are the kind of fam. Because the good news for everybody is that we get to be a part of the family. And if you're vulnerable, the good news is that you get to be a part of the family because God feeds you at the family. And if you're the most powerful person in the neighborhood, the good news is you get to be a part of the family because God feeds you at the table at the family. The good news is the same for everybody because God's creating one family, right? Where he gives his incredible gifts to everyone. And if you get that, if you get that, then we recognize that the feast with God is not just the place where we experience his gifts to the family. It's where we learn to become family together with him. You know how I knew who my play cousins were? You know how I knew who my fake uncles and aunts were? They came at Thanksgiving. The people you eat with at the feast are the people who count in your family, however you're connected to them. Same thing in Israel. And God's saying, when you give, when you show up to give, I'm going to give it all back. I'm going to throw a huge party, but make sure that everyone is invited. One scholar puts it this way. If you're looking at like the feasts and stuff that God's giving to Israel, he gives very, very few directions. I mean, he says multiple times, you can buy whatever you wish. When it comes to like figuring out what's on the table, God's like, man, I don't care. Whatever you like. Do whatever you like. Right? Bring it all. He's got very few directions about worshiping him at the feast, but he's got one that he's really hung up on, and that's that we have to invite the entire guest list. He's really hung up on who gets a seat at the table. Okay, so becoming the generous people of God requires... Okay, so I love this quote. Sorry, I want to use this quote. 
This is from Willie James Jennings, an African-American theologian at Yale. And he's written a wonderful commentary on Acts. But what he says in Acts applies here. He says, at this feast, money will be used to destroy what money is normally used to create. Distance and boundaries between people. Let me say it again. Money will be used to destroy at this feast, what money normally is used to create, distance and boundaries between people. Jesus will join us together, and he will use whatever we have to make that joining possible. What Jesus wants, what God wants, is for us to join him at the feast and to become his children in a family together. And he is willing to use whatever we have to pull that party off. And that's what generosity is all about. Note what points two and three mean about my first point. If, if the danger is idolatry, and the only way that we escape it is by worshiping our generous king with joy and becoming the family at the feast, what God is telling us is that the only safe thing to do with our stuff is to orient it towards God and neighbor. The only safe thing to do with our money in this course of our lives is to orient our entire lives towards God and neighbor. To invest our time and our talent and our resources with God and with the community. That's a safe way. That's how you get his gifts without turning them into idols. You lay them at the feet of God and you lay them at the feet of the community. But fourth, and finally... Becoming the generous people of God requires us to connect generous giving with just living. Becoming the generous people of God requires us to connect generous giving with just living. One of the like, you know, most important tips for when you're reading your Bible is if you've got a passage that you're reading, you want to pay attention to what came before that passage and what comes after, right? You're going to read it in context and say, what comes next? What comes next after this incredible tithe passage is amazing. Because in 1428, God says, he's just gotten done saying, throw this huge feast. And then in verse 28, he says, except for every third year. Wait, hold on, time out. Every third year, we're going to do a little bit different. Every third year, I want you to gather everything that you owe me. Everything that you typically feast on. And I want you to keep it at home. Why? Because I want you to store it up in your towns. Because it's going to provide food for the orphan and the immigrant and the widow and the poor all year long. And what God is telling you and me is that people who learn to be a generous family at the feast have to learn how to do justice all year long. People who have enough to eat at the Thanksgiving meal together go figure out how to make sure that everyone has enough to eat every day of the year. What the Israelites do is they become family at the feast. And then they go out and they establish what scholars tell us is the world's first religiously funded social safety welfare net. This is the first time in all of human history that a god or king says, I want you to pay regular taxes and we're going to use them for the poor. The first time. What sort of people would spend that much effort giving up their annual feasts 
giving up their favorite party of the year to make sure that everybody can have a little party every day of the year? What sort of people would do that? People who have become family at the feast. And then look at what comes up after that. Chapter 15. We don't have time to read it. But, but go read it this afternoon. Scholars tell us this is the high point of the Bible's concern for the poor. This is like the big kahuna. Chapter 15 is the passage where it says, there, shall be, there need be no poor people among you. Right? And in that passage, God gives his people several incredible laws. He says, if someone has to go into debt to you in the seventh year, you have to forgive them. And if the fact that you have to forgive debts makes you not want to give them, that's a wicked thought that God will count as sin towards you. Open up your stinking hand wide and lend to your brother sufficient for his need. And if anybody gets in the, there's a third law, if anybody gets in the worst situation imaginable, and they actually have to become a debt slave, they have nothing else to give, and say, actually, enter your house as just a worker who works your field and gets fed at your table, and that's it. If the worst case situation happens, in the seventh year, you send them out free. And you don't just send them out free, you give them a big old fat cut of the money that your household has earned for the last seven years. You send them out with everything they need to establish their economic life again. Now, I'm a Bible teacher, so I could literally spend 16 hours on this one chapter, and I'm having to really rein it in. But what all those laws do is this. They say economic justice in Israel means that the poor people get cared for today, and we cut off multi-generational poverty at its root. Nobody stays poor forever. So you get, we feast at the table, we have charity every day, and now God's saying, but I'm going to strike at the heart of the system. I'm going to create an economic system in which there need be no poor among you. And here's what we have to understand. That concern for economic justice at a systemic level flows right out of hearts and lives of people who've become family at the feast. And... God makes it very clear, we'll never get that kind of economic justice unless people are being transformed and becoming generous and becoming family at the feast. Okay, let me try to make this very, very practical. I think this is super countercultural because in the church right now we're having a debate about charity, about generosity. And some of us for a long time have used generous giving as a way to avoid just living. Say again. Some of us use generous giving as a way to avoid just living. So we've written really, really big checks or done fundraisers or whatever um, to pay for like food pantries. But we've ignored the fact that when asked, those food pantries tell us that probably 50% of the people who come for food aid have a working person in the household. In other words, 50% of the people who can't put food, literal food, on their table are working folk. And too often, giving to the food pantry has allowed us to ignore the question, why are there working people who earn such low wages or have such temporary jobs that they can't provide for themselves? And we've used the generosity to avoid the demand of justice. And this has happened in the church. And frankly now, I think we face the opposite problem. Which is often now we think that we can get justice, we can get systemic change, we can get world transformation without personal, individual self-sacrifice. 
Now, I'm going to use an example, and um, it's going to be controversial. And so I really, I really want feedback, so I want to invite you to send just your most honest, blatant feedback about this to Richard. Okay, great. Glad we got that sorted out. Um, but, like, if you watched the news recently, um, the, all the Democratic presidential candidates released their tax returns, which means we now see what they've given to charity. And we're glad they released their tax returns. We think that's a good thing. It's a good part of public transparency and accountability. But one thing it re- reveals is that with one notable exception, the entire field is incredibly ungenerous. Like one candidate held a major office in one of the biggest states in our country and reported giving zero dollars to charity for multiple years. One millionaire gave less than 1%. One person with, with, with millions uh, in a large family fund and a six-figure income gave 0.03% of their income. That's like making $300,000 and giving like 250 bucks, right? And I'm not bringing this out to shame these people. And I should say that our, the other party is, is equally guilty of this sort of thing, right? Maybe... Anyways, you can go read about how our president may have used his fund to embezzle money and stuff. So I'm not trying to pit Republicans against Democrats or vice versa. And I'm not trying to shame these people. But what I am saying is, here we have a group of people who are saying to our nation, we're going to get justice. What we need is justice. What we need is justice transformation. And there's no connection in their minds between that kind of justice and a life of personal, sacrificial generosity. Now, I'm not trying to shame them. I'm not trying to question their personal commitment to justice. But here's what I am saying. In the Bible, if your giving does not lead you to care about systems and structures of injustice, you are not giving biblically. Period. If the way you give your money does not make you care more about justice, you aren't doing the kind of giving that Moses or Jesus are talking about here. And if you think that you can be pursuing justice out there without living a life of costly personal generosity here in your own life, you're not pursuing justice biblically. Let me try to turn the knife a little bit more. If you've given big checks, right, big, big checks, to organ- or any checks at all of any size, to organizations like Streets, right, or su- and, and you haven't asked, why are neighborhoods such that they create schools where nobody graduates college ready? You're not giving biblically. If you've given to Sukasa Ministries, which works with immigrants and refugees or World Relief, to care for the poor, uh, poor immigrant in our midst. And you haven't asked, why is the world such a horrible place for refugees? You're not giving biblically. You need to follow the thread. You need to let God's giving transform you. And if you're into the justice scene, this has been more my challenge. If you work for a nonprofit or you're a public school teacher or you're very involved in some activist cause and you think that means that you're off the hook for living sacrificially with your own pocketbook, you're not pursuing biblical justice. It's not a, this is not my agenda, it's God's. It's right here in the text. If you become family together at the feast, you learn how to make sure everyone gets fed, and then you figure out how everyone can provide for themselves. Your generosity leads to justice, and your justice leads to generosity, because, because generosity is one of the ways that God wants to create us. As an enemy-loving, community-creating, evangelism-doing, justice-enacting family. And we won't get to where he wants us to be until we learn to worship him 
as our generous king, until we learn to become family at the feast, and until we learn to let our generous giving lead us into just living. Okay, what does this mean for us today? Those are my points. How do we live this out? I'm well over time, so let me give you just a couple things really quickly. First, if we were to live this passage out, a life of generosity would mean that we would become known as the people who throw the greatest parties. A generous life is not like a dour life where like walk around like saying boo hiss to every meal, right? A generous life is a life where we participate in the greatest parties ever with God and with our neighbor. There are so many examples of folks who are living this out in this body. One of the privileges of getting to preach at downtown church is when I look at what we're supposed to be doing, I see your names and faces in it. I see your names and faces as people who are living it. I can tell a million stories. I just tell one. Many, 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 many of us have been blessed by Pete and Catherine Nelson, who for more than a decade have lived in Wainoka Cove in Binghamton and have been involved with all sorts of things, but most of us know them because we've been invited to one of their incredible parties. We've been in their backyard when there's steak and potatoes and crazy amounts of food and music and we're celebrating them renewing their vows or we're celebrating Easter or we're celebrating that God has come in the flesh or we're celebrating the fact that it's Friday and we feel like it, right? The Nelsons know how to say because God is here, we all get to party, right? What if we were all growing in that direction? What if our lives of generosity led to radical indulgence together with God and with everyone invited? Because that's the other thing about the Nelson's parties. You find yourself along people from all walks of life. Now, my hunch is that if I tried to live that out better in my life, and you tried to live that out better in your life, and you tried to live that better out in your community group's life, one problem that we might face is that when we get that part about invite the orphan, the immigrant, the widow, and the poor, too often we don't have a lot of names to add to that list. Right? Like if you're an Israelite, bring the orphan, immigrant, widow, and poor. Like, oh, right here. Susie and Joe and Bill. Right? But our lives in America have been built around living in different neighborhoods, working in different workplaces, and often worshiping in different churches from people who look different from us, from people who earn different from us, from people who are from different countries from us. We just don't have names to put to those lists. So how are we going to get those names on our list? How are we going to go through parties that look like God's? Well, for one thing, you can just look around this room and say, which segment of the community am I not in relationship with? And what am I going to do about it? Like, that's... It's like that... What a tragedy if we all came here every Sunday morning and had feasts, and then when we went home, we went home to separate enclaves. What would it look like to look around and find the people who are different from you and say, that's who we're going to figure out how to feast together with, right here in this body? And then, what if we went beyond that? What if we said, how could I get involved with the work that's going on in our city such that I'm adding names to my list? What if I went and hung out with Rachel Haga at RestoreCorps and got to know some of the women coming out of the sex trade? And they became names at my feast list. What if I hung out at Advanced Memphis and found uh, men and women, many of whom have ended up at this church, who are trying to find work? and trying to earn their GED or trying to start a small business. And I got to know them, and they became the names of people who were on my guest list. What if I went and worked with World Relief or with Wayne Denny, uh, who works with Muslim diaspora communities, and, and added some names of people to our guest list who are from the, every corner of the globe, who are right here in our community? What would it look like for you to be serious about saying, and your family, 
I won't have the feast God wants me to have till everyone is invited. And I don't have any names to invite in these categories. I know that sounds like simple, but maybe it's like a really big deal. Maybe it's the key to finding ourselves becoming the generous people God wants us to. And then the last application point is maybe the hardest. And it's simply this. When you get more stuff, it's harder to give. It just is. So the solution to becoming a generous person is to give sacrificially now. To give sacrificially now. Think about that triennial tithe. Every third year, they literally had to cancel their feast and spend all the money that they would have spent on their community and give it to the food bank instead. They had to, as one scholar puts it, they had to fast at least once every three years to make sure that everyone got fed. C.S. Lewis, I love this. He said, if you ask me how much to give is too much, all I can say is it's got to be more than we can afford. If there aren't places in our lives where we look at the people like us and don't see ourselves seeing lower quality economic lives in some areas, giving some stuff up that our peers take for granted, we haven't yet gotten the message of sacrificial generosity. And the best way to practice this is make it really practical. In the next two years, most of you are probably going to make more money than you earn today. What if you made a commitment to give a higher percentage of that new money away than the percentage you give of your current money to be sacrificial in advance of that raise or that bonus or whatever it is? Or maybe, maybe that sounds a little far flung. You could do what another family in our church does. I won't name them because I think they'd be embarrassed. Um, who, uh, for a season at least, was regularly eating a very, very low-cost meal of rice and beans once a week. And they'd talk to their girls over the rice and beans about world hunger. And then they'd give the money that they saved to an organization working on that issue. That may seem small, but what they're doing is they're saying, giving happens, generosity happens when we give up something to give something. Now that's really hard to do. Right? That's really hard to do. So we've got to ask ourselves, what would it look like to be a community that challenges one another to do just that? I know I'm over time, but I just have to say this. I really, I just feel a burden to say this. Um, you're all, I hope you're all feeling convicted about being generous, right? Um, previously, previously at downtown church, you felt convicted about all sorts of things. You felt convicted about your sex life. You felt convicted about drinking too much. You felt convicted about the way that you're mean to other people, right? Uh, the way you struggle with latent racism or something, right? We've talked about all this stuff. And for every one of those areas, we know that if... We know what AA knows, which is that our sin is as big as our secrets. So if I'm on the computer late at night looking at what I shouldn't be, the only way I'm ever going to get over that is if I tell somebody about it. We know that if we're drinking too much, the only way that I'm ever going to get over that, ever, is if I say to somebody, this is how much I'm drinking. This is why I drink. This is what I drink. Now, will you hold me accountable to not doing that? We even know that if we're struggling with like latent racism or something, that we've got to get together in groups and own that. But when it comes to our money, we're like, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. <laughs> right? And none of us, I bet, I bet, there's, I bet less than 1% of the people in this room have someone outside their family who knows how much they make and how much they give. And what I want to tell you is that that's like being an alcoholic who's trying not to tell anyone while living at the bar and working as the bartender. Like, if we want to see a movement of generosity in this church, it's going to be people saying, hey, as a community group, 
we got to figure out a way to give more. What's the challenge we're going to put to ourselves? And we've got to find individuals that we say, hey, listen, i really got to come clean to you. This is what I'm making. This is what I'm giving. Can you do the same to me? How's it going? How can we challenge ourselves? We've got to open up about this stuff. If we don't, our sin is as big as our secrets, and our sin will be economic idolatry, and we'll be economic idolaters until we die. And we will never experience the life that God has intended for us. So you've got to figure out how to throw big parties, how to really become family, and how to give sacrificially together. Guys, if you follow what I'm saying about all this crazy feast stuff, which I just love, it will come as no surprise to you that when God comes in the flesh, we find him all the time sitting at dinner, eating big meals with unlikely people. It will come as no surprise to you that when our God wants to tell us, I'm about to give my life for you, he does it at a table. And he lifts up a cup of wine and he says, this, this represents the, the, the blood that I'm giving for you. This, this bread represents the body that I'm breaking for your sakes. It comes as no surprise to us that when Jesus describes what our life will be like with him forever and ever, amen, he describes it at a feast at which he himself will swallow up death forever. We've been talking a lot about generosity, but I would be remiss if I didn't end this way. Brothers and sisters, we give something because our God gave everything. Some of you may be in here, and for you, God and religion are just one more person who's trying to, trying to get one over on you. Maybe religion has made you feel ashamed and humiliated and bad about yourself all the time. Maybe you think God is looking over your shoulder, just judging you. Maybe you feel like God is like the judge, and you're like the dude in the dock, and he's just angry at you all the time, and that's your vision of God. And you're on your own to clean yourself up or climb yourself out or somehow defend yourself. And what I'm here to tell you is that the God that we're worshiping in this place is a God who gave every good gift. And when we turned them all into idols, he said, you know what I will do? I will become human and I will give myself. I will give my life. I will show them the full extent of my generosity. Though rich, I will become poor in death for their sakes. If you don't know that God, don't leave without meeting him today. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I want to invite some of our community group leaders and, uh, and deacons and elders down front to offer prayer on either side. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if like, I don't know what that story is, come talk to one of our leaders and pray with them and ask what it would look like to get to know that Jesus. And if you do know that king, and you're like me, and this week you looked at this text and you thought, I love the Lord, but I'm spending a lot of time far from the feast. I'm spending a lot of time worshiping ungenerous idols. These people, who I reiterate should be coming forward now, are here to pray with you as well. But come, get prayer for your sin-sick souls. Come, get encouragement in your weariness. And together, together, let us ask the Spirit of the living God to make us such a generous people that this city learns what it's like to feast with the King because of the way that the King feasts among us at downtown church. Let's pray. Jesus, we are wowed and amazed that you love us so much and that you are so generous. God, would you, would you be present among us as your people? Would you be present among us as your people? Would you rescue us and save us? And would you restore us into the family that you are creating here on earth for your glory and for our good? We pray these things in your name. Amen.